came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. You know what I miss about the Trump administration? What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so interested. Go. This is not. Okay. This is not a joke. This is you know. Um, no. Yeah, we never got our our infrastructure week. You know, we were allegedly <gasps> supposed to get a week uh, dedicated to um, I don't know what completely rebuilding everything um, across the country and investing in a week. Something like that. I don't. Cool. I don't know. I I just know it was announced and then it became a meme and you know. Like, could have been a real thing, but I don't hmm. really know what that means. Uh-huh. Maybe he forgot about that. <laughs> what if he but lied? At least- he, he wouldn't have lied, would he? No. <laughs> but at least now I know where Johnson got his idea of build, build, build. You know, because that kind of totally. the whole summer we've been hearing how he's going to build, build, build the UK. Mm, okay. It all makes sense now. Finally. Thank you, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm glad we uh, we do policy analysis so quickly on the show, um, <laughs> and and so coherently as well, right? Look at us. <laughs> I, I think we should turn into an analysis of current affairs show. You know, forget disasters; it'll be much more entertaining. Well, we could integrate that into our live stream schedule. You know, just kind of random current affairs live streams with the with the host of disasters deconstructed. I think if it's like branded as a happy hour, maybe <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Do we have to have like a happy hour? I don't know. Um, food of or uh, choice of cocktails and foods, you know. Mm. As long as you you organize that, Senya. Yeah. yeah, I can totally organize that. You know, things things I do to talk with you about infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Speaking of both food and infrastructure, our guest on the podcast this week, um, Dr. Marcus Hendricks, is kind of a master of both um, and has some really, one, really great food pictures on Twitter on a very regular basis that I appreciate. And that make me really jealous. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, But two, and more importantly, is running a really interesting lab um, that's dedicated to this idea of infrastructure justice and this sort of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary way of of grappling with some of these lasting legacies of social and political violence that's kind of embodied in like physical form. Throughout the season, we're trying to connect with voices carrying out unique, critical, and meaningful disaster work and research, folks who have unique insights to share. And our guest today to help us to do this is Marcus Hendricks. Marcus is 
and Assistant Professor of Urban Studies and Planning in the School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation at the University of Maryland. Marcus's work includes infrastructure planning and management, social vulnerability to disaster, environmental justice, sustainable development, public health, and the human built environment, and participatory action research. He also founded and is leading the Stormwater Infrastructure Resilience and Justice Lab, or SURGE. Welcome, Marcus. Thanks a lot, Darian. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you on the show, and uh, your work covers so many realms, and we see sort of mentions of of people and of populations, of methods, um, and of physical things like infrastructure. And so can you just sort of kind of tell us a little bit about how all of this fits together for you and how you arrived at infrastructure being at the center of your work? Sure. Yeah. You know, as a planning scholar, um, I always tell sort of my intro to planning students um, if we think of communities or cities as a stage play production, land use will represent sort of the markers on the stage and infrastructure will represent the fundamental building blocks and props by which the actors live, work and play and potential disparities in those infrastructures thus frames the entire trajectory of lived uh, experience, particularly when it comes to basic services. Um, and utilities like water, energy, food, or shelter, to just name a few, and even more graduated or aspirational services like broadband, 5G, light rail, and greenways. And for me, you know, if we're not leveling the landscape by getting after some of these root issues like land use and infrastructure, then we can never really achieve equity, justice, sustainability, or the need to be resilient. Um, and, and that's sort of how I arrived at infrastructure at the center of my work. On top of that, I think I had some intuition, you know, coming into academe because I grew up in a low income black and Latino community in inner city Dallas, um, an area where poor communities were overburdened with toxic and waste treatment facilities. Our black neighborhoods had more liquor and tobacco stores than they do healthy food outlets and grocery markets, or where female-headed households and multifamily housing stock are surrounded by bad streets and it floods all the time. And my experience was just that. I was raised by a single mother and we lived in, you know, in, in an environmental justice community where our house was flooded on multiple occasions. Um, and the street that I grew up on specifically was a street by the name of Stanley Smith Drive. And the street perpendicular to mine was a street by the name of Prosperity Avenue. The ironic thing about it was that nothing about my neighborhood was prosperous or becoming in terms of what was built for us. In fact, I would notice that the drainage and ditches in my neighborhood always looked distressed and were filled with trash and pooling water. When I would travel across town to other neighborhoods, there was a stark difference in the quality and appearance of their infrastructure. And from that point, I started to question what was it about my neighborhood that created these circumstances and built environments, um, not only for my household and neighborhood, but similar neighborhoods. And that sort of was fundamentally the intuition that led me here today and that has shaped my current research agenda. I really appreciate that reflection. Um, and also you, you naming the importance of, of lived experience and then 
and then taking us with you um, into part of your lived experience. Um, your your Twitter name and uh, your Twitter is fantastic. Uh, uh, M D H Du Bois. Um, it features a reference to to W E B Du Bois, a pioneer of sociology, a historian, a black Marxist scholar, activist, and so. I want to ask, like, where do you feel or where do you see the impact of Du Bois in your work or your lived experience? Sure. Yeah. And Darian, I would probably take it a, a step further to say, you know, Du Bois is an honorary urban planner and an early visionary uh, of the environmental justice movement because some of, you know, Du Bois's early work, specifically in the Philadelphia Negro at the end of the 19th century was sort of an example of the earliest works that studied the black community using mixed methods research to document the social environment that blacks in American cities, Philadelphia specifically, inhabited during and following the Reconstruction era. Um, du Bois's work was some of the first to show that blacks in American cities were more likely in comparison to whites to suffer from or experience illiteracy, um, unemployment, unlivable wages, um, higher death rates, alcoholism, and unsanitary and unsafe living conditions. Um, these were, you know, environmental hazard issues that, that still ring true today from what we've seen this year in light of COVID to even the ongoing crisis of climate change. I mean, I think Du Bois drew connections between demography the human built environment, hazards, public health disparities and beyond, and did it quantitatively, qualitatively, and quite literally through his hand-drawn maps and infographics. And I always tell folks that, you know, if I have a quarter of the career that Du Bois had, I'll be quite successful. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just going to second <laughs> Darren's comment about your Twitter, Darren's compliments about your Twitter. I, I follow you as well. And, you know, for, for the audience, if you're not following, Marcus, uh, please do. Um, I, I love your Twitter uh, feed. So thanks. Thanks for feeding us um, everything that you do. Thank you, Cassini. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to move us to your research because I know that you're doing a lot of interesting stuff. Um, and, you know, you, you've written on a number of occasions uh, about the importance of getting out of the university, of getting out of the academia. And you are really highlighting that communities should be leading on their investigation investigations and their interventions with their infrastructure and we've been discussing this previously um on the podcast in season one and season three and you know we've been talking about the prestige power and forgotten values manifesto where we're kind of uh, asking for for the same thing to happen right and for researchers to really appreciate this and i think this um, this idea is particularly prominent in your piece titled Transforming Public Safety and Urban Infrastructure to Mitigate Climate and Public Health Disasters. And we will provide the links um, in the show notes. So uh, for you guys who want to read it, you know, please do. So can you tell us a little bit more about this piece uh, in particular and your work in general? So how did you how did you end up here? What what led you to to this work? Sure. Yeah. Um you know, I, I think for, for many of us, this year has, has been quite a year. Um, uh -huh. and this piece really allowed me to, to say the least, right? Um, and, and I think this piece really allowed me to sort of bridge a number of issues, ongoing issues, um, in light of this year, um, 
through sort of my expertise and current and past training and, and work and research um, and, and, uh, and allowed me to sort of thread it together and was quite cathartic for me and some of the, the heaviness that I have been carrying all year. Um, and I really laid it bare in this piece. Um, and I talk about sort of in light of, of past transgressions and ongoing disparities related to the pandemic and police brutality. This moment has illuminated an opportunity for us to not only rethink public safety, but fundamentally rehabilitate urban infrastructure and reconstruct our local democracy. And I wrote this piece back in, in July and to, to sort of have the foresight to see the numbers that showed up to, to the polls for the U.S. election was astonishing and really sort of, you know, for, for me, you know, somewhat of, you know, a silver lining to this year and thinking about what democracy can achieve and what it can look like when we have a critical mass of people that are tapped in and engaged in the ways that we need them to. And I think that if planners and city officials and other relevant organizations, um, if they can engage residents in participatory mm -hmm. and community science processes to identify unmet needs and opportunities for improving the built environment um, to ensure an equitable distribution of resources, increase transparency, build on that trust in democracy and communicate progress toward public safety, we'll all be better for it. Um, and I think the investment in physical and non-physical public health and environmental infrastructures under the guidance and oversight of the public to mitigate threats to public safety is, in fact, the democracy that we all deserve right now. Um, and if we want ultimately community buy-in, which we absolutely need for any of this to be successful and have longevity, then we have to meaningfully involve the community in that process. And in fact, make sure that they're the power holders and decision makers. And I also tell, you know, my planning students uh, that our job is, is at the core to be liaisons and, and relationship brokers as planners. And that's if we're doing our job correctly and exchange expertise only for the sake of context and recommendations upon the request of the community, not to be telling communities what will be done for them and or to them. And so, again, I think in this piece, I highlight the ways in which we have to engage the community, make community the center uh, of what we do, uh, because it's important um, in terms of democracy, progress, um, and, and even with sort of infrastructure, resiliency and rehabilitation. Thank you so much for writing this piece. You know, I, I agree with absolutely every word that you've said. And I think, you know, as urban planners and disaster researchers, we should really, our work should be serving communities, but very often it's just serving kind of our careers and, you know, selfish ambition. So whilst working with communities, so through participatory methods, have you experienced any barriers to this kind of work? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I have, you know, the irony, you know, of being a planner scholar is that in light of sort of what I mentioned previously is that the recognition of community, even in planning, largely goes underappreciated and or unrecognized altogether. 
And mm-hmm. as a scholar whose research questions are rooted in community experiences and intuition, and I'm committed on another level to producing knowledge for the sake of action and having communities involved throughout that entire process, you know, it, I'm presented with a fork in the road upon entering the academy. Um, and that fork in the road forces us to choose between the pathways of, of published in a very narrow and limited sense and within the same criteria as folks not engaged with community or perish while staying true to yourself, the work that you're passionate about and the community. I think we've lost so many promising scholars over the years Mm -hmm. to this form of institutional marginalization and it's incredibly unfortunate. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so you, you've mentioned this already um, a little bit in your previous answers, but I just want to kind of talk, unpack um, the, the issue of justice a little bit more. So how do you see the kind of work that you do connected to other issues of justice, say um, the moves to abolish the police or uh, dealing with historic racial or gender systemic violence um, and so on? Sure. Um, you know, I, honestly, I think we can't talk justice holistically um, and environmental justice specifically without speaking to the total environment, including the natural environment, built environment, social environment, and even now in light of COVID, the virtual environment. Um, I think the outcomes or injustices that we see um, are quite pervasive and span across all dimensions of the environment, but the fundamental and root drivers uh, are the same and, and manifestations of redlining and racism on repeat is what we see across natural built social and virtual circumstances. Um, and so when protesters are calling for a defunding of the police, um, I believe they quite literally mean to abolish the police as we currently know it, but they also mm-hmm. challenge us to reimagine the prioritization and distribution of public taxpayers' dollars to go towards structural and non-structural assets, civic participation, and institutions that may ultimately mean a lot more in light of public safety, especially in a world of existential threats. Um, I think as a nation moving forward throughout the remainder of this, you know, coronavirus pandemic compounded by a number of sort of, you know, climate-related hazards that we've seen, um, you know, we have to grapple with and define what we mean by public safety and what does it mean mm-hmm. to fund public safety. And I think that more funding toward, you know, hazard mitigation by way of assets like stormwater and or public health infrastructure at the local level may offer us something that policing can't. Um, furthermore, I think community science and civic participation in the context of Infrastructure investment, pandemic preparedness and response and climate adaptation include the participation, accountability and transparency that the people are are demanding. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that reflection. And I want to follow, uh, follow this thread um, of justice and of infrastructure and, um, and ask if you can talk to us uh, a little bit in detail about your Stormwater Infrastructure Resilience and Justice Lab. Sure. Um, you know, we, you know, in, in my research lab that I founded uh, last year, 
Um, we we take a, a social lens to what has largely been studied as a physical process. I mean, we think about how infrastructure, environmental outcomes, and neighborhood forces interact to affect people's everyday lives and our lives during extreme events. Um, and our surge lab research focuses on flood risk and how communities can adapt um, and address barriers within what I like to call the human built environment um, to effectively mitigate disastrous consequences from stormwater runoff. Um, and we're specifically interested in how stormwater runoff can escalate and overwhelm stormwater infrastructure, especially in the era of faster and more frequent and intense runoff. Um, we think, you know, uncontrolled stormwater runoff can cause urban flooding and threats to the human built environment. Um, and lower income communities, particularly of color, are expected to face the worst of these stormwater problems in the future. Um, and these realities can have some notable consequences for communities of color in light of everyday differential urban stormwater management, flood exposures, disaster damage outcomes, economic impacts. Uh, resilience, you name it. Um, and so that's where um, the work um, of the lab uh, is centered um, and, you know, has just begun. Mm. What kind of work are y'all up to in, in Maryland where you're situated these days? Yeah, I mean, we have a, a number of ongoing projects that have, that have either recently been funded or really, you know, just in its infancy. Um, and four main projects specifically um, that I'm working on with the support of some of my graduate students. Um, one of the first projects that we're working on is a multi-method, you know, approach to assess sanitary risk and pathways to, to waterborne microbial exposures associated with vulnerable sanitary and wastewater infrastructure in Baltimore. Um, and this project was really um, started um, through support from an early career fellowship that I received through the JPB Foundation um, to study and assess sanitary sewer backups and overflows um, and how, you know, bacteria from contaminated surfaces within the built environment can cause public health issues and concerns for residents and, and neighborhoods in Baltimore um, and really sort of expanding you know, the, the work of my research from not only thinking about water quantity in terms of flooding, but water quality issues as well. Um, another project that we're working on is sort of a qualitative study of, you know, black settlements and communities in Maryland and thinking about how during, you know, the U.S. reconstruction settlements and townships were established for free or recently freed African Americans throughout the United States. But many of the, many of these lands, uh, were physically characterized by dirt roads and swampy areas and what we like to call bottomlands or floodplains. And so we're taking a combined, you know, social vulnerability to disaster, environmental justice and critical race theory approach to understand and explore the historical and political context, um, of historical African-American communities in the U.S., particularly within Maryland, and, and trying to understand sort of how it set the stage for, you know, years to come of chronic flooding issues that these communities ha have faced. Um, we're also, you know, exploring infrastructure issues, of flood risk, 
um, in Washington, D.C., and thinking about the, the length, type, and capacity of both gray and green infrastructure and, and the inventory condition and distribution of those assets and, and being installed to, to manage both everyday stormwater runoff as well as, you know, more extreme events related to flooding in the district. Um, and then lastly, you know, I've again sort of stretched myself, um, across, you know, the aisle into some of the more natural and physical sciences. Um, and thinking about how can we not only use sort of socially innovative uh, methods and, and you know, in terms of particip uh, participation in community science, but how can we marry that with some of the emerging technological advancements in terms of sensors and the Internet of Things to, to improve um, stormwater management? And so, you know, I've uh, through some support through our university sustainability fund. I've installed three smart stormwater sensor stations at outfalls across campus to do some longitudinal monitoring of uh, the the quality of water um, that's running off of campus and being deposited into local bodies of water. And so a suite of projects ranging from, you know, his, uh, taking a historical perspective to uh, a contemporary cross-sectional perspective related to infrastructure to you know, technological innovation and sensor work to, to better understand and address issues of stormwater and flooding. Can I just say, well, I, I really appreciate how you um, sort of distinguished your lab's work from sort of other labs that center infrastructure, but as you said, sort of talk about things in terms of just the physical. And it sounds like y'all have a lot going on and are doing a lot of really important work. And I just want to Probably ask, way too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm really grateful for all of this work that you're doing. Uh, one question that um, I know came up for me when the sort of announcement of the creation of your lab at least hit my timeline it's like like just the word justice kind of stood out to me as like a very unique term in the middle of like infrastructure resilience and lab and so i, I want i want to ask you like like why was it important for you to include justice in your lab name sure yeah you know, I think it was it was really important to me and, and hopefully a direct reflection of, of what I think I represent and what my work represents. Um, and, you know, one of my extended mentors and in my opinion, one of the most prophetic thinkers of the last quarter century, you know, and, and Dr. Cornell West, um, Dr. West always says that justice um, is what love looks like in public. And one of my other all-time faves, um, one of the greatest MCs to ever hold a mic, in my opinion, and, and Nas said, as long as your love for the people is deep-rooted and evident. Um, and I think my love for the people is, in fact, deeply rooted and hopefully evident. And I've dedicated my career to getting the community, you know, their flowers and showing love through justice yeah. in the context of what I do. Um, and that stormwater infrastructure resilience. Um, and so for me, these things are inextricably linked um, and we do it a disservice by talking 
about one in isolation of the other. And so, again, you know, across a number of projects that I've mentioned, justice and equity uh, is, is at the center and driving everything that we do. And you will never hear me talk about, you know, resilience and stormwater or flooding or infrastructure outside of the context of how do we ensure justice and equity. Let's talk about infrastructure a little bit. Um, one of the, you know, together with resilience um, and community and yet another contested term. Um, mm. So I guess when we ask about infrastructure, lots of people would have different ideas about what it is, right? And what it includes or does not, or who it includes or doesn't. Um, so in your opinion, what are the big misconceptions do you think the public and disaster researchers as well have about infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, when it, when it comes to misconceptions related to infrastructure, yeah, to your point, I think it spans both the public um, and disaster researchers as well as engineers, right? And uh, mm. a group that I've worked with closely over the years from my dissertation research um, until now. And I think the, the biggest misconception, in my opinion, is that a lot of people like to think that infrastructure operates in a vacuum. And that infrastructure is designed, installed, and managed over a life cycle equally, um, and it and it sort of has no sort of influence uh, outside of the laboratory in which it was designed and the engineers that installed it. And we don't recognize that infrastructure management, the infrastructure management process, um, from inventory to maintenance and rehabilitation. Uh, are largely moderated by social processes um, from residential segregation and predatory lending to the clustering of locally unwanted land uses in these same areas. Um, and so, you know, we have to sort of understand that, you know, social processes and infrastructural processes are inextricably linked um, and we can't talk one without the other, especially when we think about, you know, the ways in which these infrastructures are managed and maintained over the life cycle, which speaks to the quality and condition and level of service in, in terms of their, their operation and being able to provide the utilities and services that communities depend on. Um, and these are, are, are root causes. These are root issues. And I think disaster researchers specifically, you know, have, have sort of alluded to the aftermath of the failure of some of these systems in terms of, of damage and impact um, from hazard exposures, but haven't really thought about sort of the inherent nature of how the failure of, you know, equitable and just management of these systems that lead to these disparities in terms of, of you know, disaster damage outcomes. Um, and, you know, the public, you know, from, you know, communities, which I think they intuitively know, but the public in terms of elected uh, leadership and people who sort of hold public offices at the municipal level and uh, beyond have to see infrastructure as a continuation of social circumstances. Um, and yeah. I always say that the broader community and built infrastructure is a reflection of the quality of housing. And the quality of housing is usually a reflection of who lives there and what they look like and, and where they come from. And so, again, you know, we've 
as planners, we've abandoned infrastructure and left it up to engineers. We have to tap back in and reconnect. Um, and again, understand that continuation of, you know, these social and or physical processes specifically related to infrastructure. And do you feel that the COVID pandemic impacted your understanding of infrastructure? You know, I don't think that it's really sort of impacted my understanding. For me, the moment has really served as confirmation um, that I think I'm, I'm, I'm on to something, right? Um, mm. and, and I and I really need to stay the course of the work that I'm doing from stormwater mm. systems um, to even getting back to some of my early training in public health um, and thinking about how public health infrastructure, both physical and or social from staging areas and clinics that serve communities to even how we might, you know, mobilize community scientists and doing contact tracing. And so for me, the moment and the pandemic has really served as confirmation and just further sort of uh, illuminated for me the need to do this work um, and, and hopefully sort of uh, you know, get it out to the world um, and influence practice and policy in a ways that we absolutely need now yesterday. This is kind of off the cuff, but um, I'm really struck by you pointing out that planners have sort of abandoned infrastructure and left mm -hmm. it to engineers. Um, the, the layers in that statement and the histories in that statement. Um, and, you know, I myself am also a planner. And so do you, I see your lab as one space where planners are reengaging infrastructure in meaningful and nuanced and, and attentive ways. And so I want to ask you, like, how do you feel about uh, the future of your discipline, of our shared discipline uh, and infrastructure? Do you feel like we're moving back towards the right direction or a right direction? Um, yeah. How do you feel about the future? I, I think so. I mean, you know, the future from my perspective seems to be promising um, because I think that, in fact, you know, the, the buzzword of the moment is this convergence. Um, and I think, you know, it's not sort of because of, of our coining of the phrase of, of convergence that we owe credit, but I think these issues, uh, these existential crises that we continue to face are coming to a head in ways that, you know, engineers are, are being forced to recognize that, wait a minute, you know, how we initially thought about infrastructure I issues from a physical design and installation perspective, something is missing. Um, and I think social scientists and planners are understanding that in order to truly understand inequality or how these systems operate in a social world, we have to understand the physical dimensions of it. Um, and so I think, you know, we're, we're, we're in a, in a time, in a moment. Um, where, you know, the, the, these grand global environmental challenges are forcing us to converge and see the benefit of reaching across the aisle, having sort of bigger and broader conversations that are interdisciplinary, 
Um, and, and hopefully, you know, again, sooner than later, we embrace the, the moment um, and, and do just that and continue to embrace interdisciplinary scholarship um, and, and, you know, including sort of issues uh, of infrastructure um, and how they serve communities. Thank you so much for that reflection. Um, and I want to thank you again for joining us today, Marcus. Um, where can we find a little bit more from you that we can link in our show notes? Sure. Yeah. Thank you all for, for having me. Um, you can uh, check out um, a lot of my ongoing work and projects, as well as the students that are supporting um, in my research lab at, at my lab webpage at arch.umd.edu slash surge, S-I-R-J. Um, or, or you can find me on my Twitter handle at Bois. And please do reach out and engage, and I will be more than happy to, to connect. Our Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Consenia, Darian, and me, Marcus Hendricks, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.